Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Park Investing Weekly Podcast. We'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp. In today's show, we're going to be speaking with mobile home park investor, Angela Noy. Andrew is a principal at Park Place Communities, a national real estate management company focused on affordable and manufactured housing. Their team takes a hands-on approach to the business and controls every aspect of park operations from hiring local managers and maintenance to overseeing the sales and leasing process and everything in between. They take great pride in creating and implementing systems and processes to manage and control their communities efficiently while still keeping an eye on the bottom line. They currently operate communities in 12 states and are adding to that number each and every year. Okay, so guys, I'm anxious to get onto the show with Andrew. But before we do, here's a quick word from our show sponsor, Sunrise Capital Investors. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here with Sunrise Capital Investors. As you are hopefully already well aware, if you've been a listener for any period of time, my goal has always been to provide you with as much value as I possibly can through my two podcasts, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. As our audience continues to grow, literally, we've been downloaded millions of times by folks in over 125 countries. I've had thousands of people reach out looking to get involved in our niche. And that's the phenomenal niche of mobile home park investing. For those that don't know, I've been a full-time real estate investor for nearly 20 years now, and I've personally invested in and have owned apartment complexes, various commercial properties, hundreds of single-family rentals, and I've interviewed some of the most successful investors in just about every other asset class, and I've arrived at this one very simple conclusion. Mobile home parks are hands down the best investment I've found to date. Why? They provide investors with the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other real estate sector that I've seen. Investing in real estate can get complicated, and I really want to simplify this process for you. If you're someone who wants to diversify away from the uncertainty of Wall Street and allocate a percentage of your real estate portfolio to mobile home parks, but maybe you don't have the time nor the inclination to personally locate good deals yourself, then our team will do it for you. At Sunrise Capital Investors, our team specializes in the acquisitions and management of undervalued and highly profitable mobile home parks. And we are now providing accredited investors with an opportunity to participate directly alongside our team in our up-and-coming deals. And let me say this, I believe that we are hands down the best in our space at sourcing highly profitable off-market deals. That's really what makes us unique in this niche and as investment managers. As stewards of your capital, we truly are aligned with our investors. We've structured our investment fund so that we as a company are incentivized in the same way the investor is, which is through the performance of the investment itself. In addition, we want to make sure that we not only make money for our investors, but that they understand how it's being made. 
That's why we provide our accredited partners with a private monthly podcast that walks them through the detailed updates on how their investment is performing. And we're very transparent, providing you with the good, the bad, and the ugly at times. And so if you'd like to learn more about the partnership opportunities with our team here at Sunrise, please go visit sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and click on the investors link to get signed up. It's absolutely free and you'll get placed on the priority list of when new opportunities come along. Also, feel free to call us at 833-CASHFLOW-WITHOUT-THE-O. Again, that's 833-CASHFLOW-WITHOUT-THE-O. And one of our investor relations team members will help you schedule an appointment to speak with one of our managing principals. If you have questions, go ahead and schedule a call and let's get on the phone and talk. And with that, guys, I'd like to leave with one last thought. From the time that I wake up in the morning to the time that I lay my head down the rest of the evening... My number one priority with everything I do, whether it be recording this podcast, working for our investors, helping each of you reach your investment goals, to providing a great experience to each of our residents who reside in our communities, is to add huge amounts of value to everyone that I come in contact with. Now, with that being said, I look forward to the opportunity of bringing value to you through Sunrise and through this podcast. Thank you for your time. Now, let's go ahead and get back to the show. All righty. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest for today's show, Andrew Lenoy. Andrew, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, Kevin. I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, doing great, man. Thanks for joining us. And to give our listeners a sense of geography, where are we calling you at today? Where are you based out of? So I'm based in, I live in Scottsdale, Scottsdale, Arizona, and our office is in Gilbert, which is kind of the southern part of the Phoenix, Arizona market. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Well, uh, Andrew, I know that you've been in this space for a number of years now. We, we've been in about the same period of time. And so uh, for those that are actually probably in the industry, you probably heard of Andrew or his company, but for those that, that don't know too much about Andrew or have never heard of your name, why don't you take a few minutes and give us a little background on yourself? Because you haven't always been in the mobile home park space. In fact, you got a very interesting background story that will probably shock a lot of folks. And so I'd love if you would maybe tell a little bit of your background, your story and how you got into the space. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, I was uh, in in Los Angeles. I lived there for about 20 years. And I worked at a a company called the William Morris Agency. And if anyone has seen the show Entourage on HBO, that was essentially our company. We created that, packaged that around Mark Wahlberg and kind of his stories of growing up in the entertainment industry. And my focus there was I I worked with uh, celebrities and specifically comedians and, and different bands and represented them, and it was there a good, good 16 years. So that was a big part of my, my professional background. And when the subprime crash happened, my, my folks who had retired to Fort Myers, Florida, and uh, I was living in Los Angeles, my parents had lost a bunch of money in the downturn along with a lot of other people. And that was kind of my big eye-opening what-the-heck-happened moment and started leading me to read you know a bunch of books on economics and it kind of all led me to real estate uh, and that was back in you know back in the subprime crash time period very interesting so that was your first uh, I guess introduction to real estate so you, you basically saw what happened to your parents which happened to a lot of folks and got interested you dug into those books but really at what point were you guided to mobile home parks because honestly back then there really wasn't much information out there about mobile home park investing is really only maybe one or two books on the topic. You probably, you couldn't go to amazon.com like you can today and find you know, hundreds or thousands of books on investing in single family homes or even apartment complexes. Uh, mobile home park is such a small niche. It's grown over the last couple of years, but back then there wasn't much about it. So talk to me a little bit about your introduction to this particular niche. 
I'll back up a little bit. So in, in 2009, I started buying single family homes and Dallas, Texas was the first market I went into, followed by Memphis, Tennessee, and then Atlanta, Georgia. And in about a four-year window from about 2009 to 2013, I bought a lot of single-family homes with partners, and I started a little turnkey company in Atlanta where we were buying C-class single families kind of in the, the southern part of Atlanta, Georgia. So in terms of the investing, that's really how I, how I cut my teeth with various partners. We bought about you know a little over 100, 100 homes in that four-year window. A lot of them were buy and hold. Some some we started to get into flips towards the end in, in the Atlanta market. And sometime around 2013, the pricing in the single family space was started to feel pretty frothy. I think arguably when I got in in that 2009 period was probably one of the best times to get in, at least in this, this last market cycle. So I started looking at multifamily, started looking at different commercials, started looking at a lot of different asset classes, including mobile home communities and manufactured housing. And I had a friend who had bought some parks and really took a good look at that model. And that was, you know, I realized there was a huge opportunity. And so basically 2013, 2014 is really when I started to, to get my head wrapped around that, that space. So did you consider other asset classes? I mean, obviously you got self-storage, you got retail, you got office, multitude of other types of commercial real estate. So aside from residential, many other types of commercial real estate. Did you look at any other assets before finally deciding on mobile home parks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really were really interested in multifamily, which is obviously residential, but we looked at, we really looked at everything. And based on where we were in the market cycle, multifamily is a great example. I mean, even back then, it felt really frothy, like it was just getting, you know, cap rates were starting to compress back. Back then, there was a lot of money getting thrown around in that space. And I think that's still the, the case today. So when I took a really good look at mobile home communities, I mean, you were just seeing higher cap rates, you were just seeing probably more inventory than a lot of other asset classes during that time. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed as being some of the biggest changes in our industry? So you, you chose mobile home parks back then; cap rates were higher. You know, just from your perspective, and you're on kind of a national scale. You're in, you know, I think we mentioned twelve different states, and so you've got a presence uh, all across the country. You know, different economic climates in each probably one of those markets that you're in. But generally speaking, what are some of the big changes that you've seen? Uh, since you bought your first park up until today, yeah, I think well, there, there's a few a few changes. I mean, overall, I think one of one of the reasons that that you and I are both probably in this space is that we're able to to really put it make an impact on on residents and affordable housing. And there's just a, a, a massive demand for it in the United States, and there's all kinds of statistics on it, like. It's 50% of wage earners are making, I think the number is a little under $31,000 a year. And you kind of break that into what that what someone takes home on a monthly basis in terms of what they can afford to, to rent or buy. And it's not much money. You know, it's like $600 and change on a monthly basis. And you've got the median one-bedroom apartment in the U.S. is $1,200. The median mortgage is $1,000. So you've got all these statistics which are which are pretty startling and it really boils down to that salaries are not keeping up with expenses that's been going on for years and years and years very simplistic way of looking at it but that's you know that's one of the one of the big reasons we got in the space some of the the changes that we've seen i guess especially in the past year or so is when when we're at the conferences like you and i were talking about this before there's a lot of a lot of institutional 
players that are starting to get into this space. Some of that is just a, a result of where we are in the market cycle and people that are looking for yield and not getting it in other asset classes. So that's a that's a huge change that, that we've seen. It's just a lot more interest in this space than there was, let's say, you know, eight, eight years ago, 10 years ago. How, how do you feel about that? Some of these larger players getting into our space? Do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's a bad thing? And I've, I've got my own opinion as well that I'll share. Yeah, I, I think it, I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a good or bad thing. I, I can see both sides. So let me give an example. We both know that this is, this is a challenging space to be in. I think when you're in affordable housing in general, our space, no, no difference. You've got, you know, you've got a, a harder tenant class that you're dealing with, but we're also, you know, as, as operators, we're creating the housing for people. We're creating jobs. There's a lot of really great things that come from it. But it's not A-class real estate, so you've got some challenges there. And I've talked to some brokers about this and other folks that, that are in the industry, and I think that what we'll start to see is people coming into this space, acquiring, writing big checks for, for these communities, and then possibly going on the market in, in a year down the line because they, they haven't figured out how to operate these things or build mm-hmm. a team around that. So that's that's kind of you know, pretty simply what one of my takes is on, but I'd definitely be curious to hear what you think. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. And I think that's a, that's a good, that's a benefit for us because larger institutional guys, they're not looking for the value add stuff. And there's a lot of value add in our space. I mean, you've got an aging population of owners, you've got, you know, first generation owners that built these things 40 years ago that still own them today that haven't necessarily run them like a professional business. They haven't had the capital or the resources to to infill uh, empty lots when they've come empty, especially the you know the owners that manage these parks through the chattel crisis that occurred in the late 90s. A lot of them never fully recovered. They never really had the capital because they've been living off the the revenue of these parks. And so all across the board, we see parks out there that have you know, 40, 50% vacancy and, you know, lots that are fully developed infrastructures there, but there's no homes because it's incredibly capital intensive. And so I know that those institutional guys, they don't have the ability of the infrastructure or the, nor the interest to, to buy something that that's heavy of a value add lift. It's not scalable for them, but it leaves a lot of opportunity for guys like us to, to purchase those, increase the value of these things, stabilize them. And then the good thing about these institutional players, like one of the pros I see is that there's a larger back end exit for us once we stabilize the community. In addition to that, if you're in the business of building a portfolio, if you're not just going to go buy one or two communities, let's say that your goal is to buy 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 of them, whatever it might be, 15 years ago, if you, if you build a large portfolio like that, if you ever want to divest of your of your assets, more than likely, you're going to have to piecemeal them off. You're going to have to sell them maybe one or two at a time because there weren't any larger institutional investors or guys with deep pocketbooks in the space. You know, you'd have been selling to other, you know, smaller operators that would have had the ability to take down one or two at a time. So you'd have had to piecemeal your exit. Whereas today with larger institutional guys in the business, there's a portfolio exit opportunity. And in that scenario, typically we see very compressed cap rates on the, on the exit side, which again, if that's part of your business plan, if you want to scale, uh, there's opportunity here to do it. There are challenges associated with the scale, which Andrew, you, you and I talked about on the operational side, which is good and bad as well, right? It, it's a barrier to entry for other folks getting into this business, but it's a big benefit for folks like you and I that have you know, somewhat figured it out. 
right? We figured out how to scale this business, how to find those bad opportunities, how to add the value to them. And then we know now that there's a lot more opportunity on the backside to sell these at some point if we decide to, to a larger institutional player. So that's kind of my opinion on it. I think it's promising that they're in the space. It adds a lot more validity to the space. In addition to that, it opens up a lot more financing options, right? A lot of banks, they, they kind of, uh, it piques their interest once they see like Carlisle Group or, or Blackstone getting into the space. They're like, oh, wow, well, if, if they like it, if they're getting into the space, what are we missing? You know, maybe we should consider it. <laughs> maybe we should take a look. So in any event, I think it's, I think it's all positive. It has been a little more challenging to find great opportunities. I mean, everyone's chasing yield. So I don't think it's really a mobile home park problem. It's just a, you know, yield problem in general. Everyone's chasing yield. Everyone's seeking a way to deploy their capital into something that will give them a return on it. Multifamily is very challenging nowadays. And so now I see multifamily players that would have stuck their nose up at our space two years ago, Andrew. And now they're clamoring at the opportunity to, uh, to buy parks, right? Like now they're, now they're considering the space. So I think it's good in any event. So I'm going to stop rambling on, but that, that's kind of my opinion on it. <laughs> I think it's, all, it's all really good points. And I think that we'll see as, as operators, we'll, we'll see some communities that come back on the market down the line because it's it's easy to jump in and write a big check if you're a big big institutional player or you have a read or something like that but you know again the operation the operation side of this is uh, is is challenging yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your first deal. I always like to, to understand like the foundation, you know, when someone actually, you know, put their toe into the water, stuck their toe into the water in its niche. So tell us a little bit about like that very first deal, where it was, how you sourced it, some of the lessons learned, and then, you know, maybe how your business has changed since that very first deal. Yeah. So the, the first deal that we actually did was, was actually a portfolio of seven communities and when I say portfolio, we, we had created that portfolio. We had, we had partners that had come in with a 1031. So we had a bit, you know, we were under the, under the, the, the gun to fulfill that 1031. So we bought seven communities. I think they were in four States kind of in the areas that were in it was Kentucky and Kansas and Alabama, Missouri. And they were at very low occupancies like sub 25%, right? Wow, and so we wow. picked them up at ridiculous, ridiculous prices. The price per lots were really low. The cap rates were high. But that was really the first communities that we did. And we still own those communities. We still are, we, four years later, we still have our, our partners who have been great to work with and communities are definitely move, moving along. But, you know, your first communities are always a challenge when you're building out, you know, building out a team and a company and things like that. So, I mean, there's tons of lessons, but, you know, we tried using subcontractors in some of the markets as far as the construction side. And that was a challenge. So we, we realized that we needed to, to pull that in in house and create a construction company and have a lot more control. Same with the property management side. So, I mean, you, you, you learn a million lessons through the, through the process, especially when you, you know, when you take on that many, that many communities in a relatively short period of time. Sure, sure. So I'd love to talk about your construction side of your business. I mean, that, that that's fairly unique. Everyone's got a different way of uh, of skinning the cat. And uh, you guys decided yeah. that the best approach to take is to build out that infrastructure ahead of time. And uh, you got a fairly robust team. You got a traveling team, which I definitely see the merit in that. So talk to me a little bit about that side of your business, kind of the benefits that you guys are yielding now because of having this traveling construction team on board versus you know, having to find different subcontractors in all the different markets that you're in, because that, that, that in itself will give you gray hairs, having to find these in, you know, in individual subs, not even finding them, let alone once you found them, make sure that they show up, right? And actually do the job accordingly. 
Yeah, that's a whole another challenge. In any event, talk to me a little bit about the construction side of your business, if you would. Yeah, so I think just we did that really through trial and error and realized that we need we needed a lot more control of that part of the business because we were buying, even if we stopped buying communities that were that low of an occupancy and now we're, you know, we're looking at things more in kind of the 50, 60, 70% range. Every time we buy a community, there's always park on homes. So if you put your resident hat on for a minute, when you, when you come into a community, if you've got something for sale there for 15 or $20,000 for a newly renovated home, and then you have something in terms of a new home and maybe it's, you know, 35, 45, 50,000 retail, depending on the, the, the area in the home, you have two different options for your, for your residents. So that was basically part of the reason that we decided to build out the construction company. I think we, we currently have about 45 W2 guys on that side of the business with, with a few people that run that team. And we're in the somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 to 20 homes that we're renovating a month across the portfolio. And we, we basically go in some of these homes, as you, you, you certainly know, are not worth very much money when on an acquisition, you might have a, you might have a, a single wide home there. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's worth a grand or 500 bucks or, you know, it was built in 1979 or 1980. But if you, if you do the right work and you put $10,000 into it and everything from subfloors to appliances, to new skirting, to paint, to roof, to windows, all of a sudden it's a really nice home, especially for that price point. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. We've got we got about five five crews that travel around, depending on the length of the project. And the the upside to having traveling crews is they can they can get on site and start turning units right away. And the downside is there's some more expenses associated with that versus you know hiring a supervisor or superintendent and flying them out to a community and then building a team. They they may not be able to turn any units for the first. 60 to 90 days as they're, as they're building that team out. And then you're getting into the issues of just like you had said with, you know, with, with contractors and people not showing up or, you know, people showing up drunk and all, all those things that are you know, <laughs> associated with that side of the side of the business. Sure. Sure. How do you guys feel about park owned homes? I know that, I mean, you have to be accepting of that part of the business to be in this business, right? I mean, we own a number of communities that have zero park-owned homes. We own other communities that have a lot of park-owned homes, and then we have everything in between. But uh, generally speaking, how do you guys feel as a company about the park-owned home component of the business? Yeah, I think we embrace them in, in general. I mean, they're they're going to be in most of the communities that we buy. So we look at it as an opportunity to you know, we add it to the construction construction schedule and we have, I don't know if you've noticed it on, on your side, but finding used homes is a challenge in certain states and certain markets. So if you've got park-owned homes that simply need to be renovated or maybe it's a maybe it's a renter that you can convert them over some time, then we look at it as, a, as an opportunity. Yeah, we don't even try too much anymore to find the used homes. I found that, you know, we do renovate. It, it, it takes a complete disaster for us to consider ripping a home out. I think we've yeah. only ever ripped out maybe six homes out of all the communities that we own. Because like you had mentioned, you could put 10000 or 12000 into a home that might only be worth 1000 today and turn it into a very nice home. In fact, I'll give you an example. A community up in New York that we're uh, going to be closing on here in a couple of weeks, that owner, he, he takes 
uh, older 1970s trailers. Uh, he, he does the most amazing job I've ever seen in my life. Old flat roof 70s trailers. He'll basically go and put brand new vinyl windows in, vinyl siding on it. He'll actually create a pitched roof. So he'll build a, you know, uh, some trusses on top of the, uh, the flat roof, metal roof on top of that. And he does some really unique other aspects to the outside cosmetically. Redoes the floor plan if it's got if it's got three small bedrooms, he'll make two larger bedrooms. I mean, completely redoes this thing. And these things are gorgeous. He'll turn around and sell these. He'll put twelve to thirteen in the one and sell them for twenty five thousand dollars. So I think you have to know your market as well. There's some markets that you'd probably never get that investment back out of. Like if you went to rural Alabama and you spent twelve thousand dollars on a nineteen. 75 home, more than likely, you're probably going to lose money on that endeavor. Whereas in other parts of the country, you'll surely turn a profit if you do it correctly. So as far as Parkland Homes in general, again, we embrace them. You know, If there was an opportunity to ever get rid of that part of the business, I'd be the first one to vote for, but it's not the case, right? I mean, it, it's, it's part of the business and it's here and you have to be accepting of it and it just is what it is. So more so, instead of you looking for used homes, we either renovate what's there or we bring in new homes. You know, one of the two. I feel like the energy and effort that it takes to find used homes and then the expense associated with bringing it in, doing the renovations, getting it set. I mean, you're already into it. If you're lucky, you're into it for 15 grand and you sure. got a still, then you still have a 20 year old home that, you know, it's good, but it's not great. Right. It's right. so. I feel like and our, obviously some of the some of the programs out there through you know Berkshire and they yeah. they they've, they've made that pretty pretty appealing to operators to bring in new homes and obviously the financing is pretty good for for some of these residents too. Yeah, and so that's what we we'll, that's what we started doing. We we don't really we do the twenty first program, but we'll give it a few months to try to sell the home. If we're not getting overwhelming demand for a straight out sale, then we'll just put it into their community rental program and finance it and keep it on our balance sheet, and then we'll turn around and do like a rent credit program on the home. Just give us more control that way. You don't have new inventory sitting around. And I know that in any given market, if you've got it priced right and you've got the right home and your community shows well, that you can move a a lease option or rent rent to own rent credit, whatever you want to call it. You can sure. move those very quickly to a very qualified resident. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and one of the, some of the challenges that we've, we've found too, and it, it's kind of piggybacks on exactly what you were saying is in some, in some states, in some markets, I mean, just the, the being in affordable housing is one of the big challenges is residents coming up with down payments. So you got to get creative with some of that. We don't want to be in a rental business with the majority of our homes, but you know, some of these folks coming up with a couple thousand dollars is, is yeah. nearly impossible, which is just a, that's just, that's just the reality of where we are in the, in the country right now. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what makes some areas different than others. Cause if you look at the general statistics of an area, the median, median incomes and overall unemployment rates and uh, median home prices and median rents and all those factors, you can, you can literally compare two markets side by side and see that they're very similar in nature, but then realize that in one people are savers and the other one people literally never have a nickel rub, to rub together. And I'm not sure exactly. I haven't been able to figure out how to fully identify some of those areas without doing test ads first to determine what type of demographics are really going to show up once we actually start trying to sell homes. So yeah. normally we'll do a little bit of a front end marketing before we close in the park to get a better feel for exactly what we're about to encounter and how we can truly execute on our, our final business plan with either selling homes or having to do a more creative rent to own type arrangement. Right. Um, how are you guys sourcing deals nowadays? Uh, what, what, what's some of the best opportunities you've come across recently? Are, are you guys doing a lot of direct to owner marketing? Are you relying on brokers? Kind of what's your, 
your angle there? Yeah, I think it's been across the board. I mean, in general, it's been, we've done direct mail with some success. We've had a bunch of deals that we've done with, with brokers, whether they're some of the nationals or whether they're more regionals. But I think that as we grow as a company and we acquire more communities in the states that we're operating in, which, which of course is, you know, one of the goals is to, we talked about this earlier, just clustering where you are operating, you get to know some of the local folks on the ground, there, brokers. And so I think there's definitely opportunity with, with the direct in terms of the, you know, trying to find out who the sellers are, but also even regional or local brokers. I think there's a big opportunity there too. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Let's talk about uh, private utilities. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This is a question that we get quite often. I get a lot of potential, I guess, uh, mobile home park owners and operators that are just looking at the space, looking to buy their first park. And, you know, they might have read an article, might have heard another podcast, and, you know, hear all the horror stories that exist or that can exist with private utilities. How do you guys feel about private utilities? And do you own parks that are on private utilities? Yeah, we do have a few. I mean, I think in a, in a perfect world when, when we're buying, it's, you know, everything everything just goes through city-wise. Uh, you know, we've got communities across the board where maybe we have lagoons and things like that, which I know are big no-nos for some, some groups and some investors. But I think if the, in general, if the community makes sense and we've got a plan there to either convert it then we'll certainly look at it in a perfect world. Everything would just be passed through to the residents, but it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly with how fragmented this market is. That's not the case, you know, hundred percent of the time. Have, have you guys, have you had any big gotchas or, or unexpected CapEx expenses that are, were associated with private utility setups? I mean, after you got into the park, you uncovered a few things that were not necessarily on selling, but just were an expense that you hadn't planned for. Well, I think the sewer, just sewers in general, since a lot of these parks were built in the, I mean, most were built in the 50s and 60s, right? So mm-hmm. you've definitely got you've sewer issues and depending on what time of the year you're buying and what area of the country you're buying, certainly things like that can come out and, you know, kind of bite you down the line. But as long as you're doing your due diligence and you can get in there and, you know, snake all the lines and run cameras and everything, then that was something we definitely learned. Got it. Got it. I know that being in this space, you, you pretty much have to be prepared for financing challenges, especially if you're in the value add business like you and I are. How have you guys been able to overcome, you know, uh, finding adequate financing for some of these larger value add deals that you've taken on? I mean, I, I'm assuming that very first portfolio that you had mentioned, uh, the one that was, you know, 20 or 25% occupancy, I'm going to guess that that was seller held financing. Am I correct there? Or yeah, a bunch of it was some was yeah. cash, but you're absolutely right. And that's you know, obviously the, the, the more problems there are in the lower occupancy, the seller knows that they want to get anywhere near what they think the value is that they may have to carry some paper on that because certainly you're, you're not going to find conventional financing on stuff like that. Have you guys noticed a challenge? Have you run into challenges more recently over the last year or two with some of the more recent properties you've purchased regarding getting good financing in place? And if so, have you overcome them? Yeah, I think in general, I mean, the financing, it's, it's, it seems like across the board is getting easier, but we're still focused. I mean, when you buy something at 45%, your options are limited. So I bet in, I'm just going to throw a number out. I mean, maybe in 35 or 40% of our portfolio, we've had seller financing. It's actually been pretty reasonable rates and terms. Uh, we've done some private bridge loans and floater loans that we worked out. We bought a bunch in cash. So I think in general, I mean, I've talked to a couple of new lenders this week. It seems like the, the lending is starting to loosen up and that's just, mm-hmm. I think where we are in the market cycle too. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Just kind of like we were talking about before. I mean, there's a lot more focus being put on the space and a lot of banks are seeing that it, it might be a good opportunity for them to, to get into. And so yeah, it, even I was just at Seco a couple of weeks ago, yeah, which is the Southeastern yeah. conference. And there were a couple lenders there that I had never heard of before that were you know first time sponsors. So that's a good thing. I mean, it gives us many more options because uh, up until, you know, literally a year or two ago, th- there weren't many options, at least for parks that were under $2 million and, and had, occupancy issues or, or were heavy value at plays. There's not a lot of options out there. Even bridge debt, you know, bridge debt, what most people don't understand is commercial bridge debt, more formal commercial bridge debt typically has minimum loan amounts of four and $5 million. I mean, it's, it's fairly high loan amounts. And so yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily work unless you can find a private lender that's willing to offer you a bridge or a floater loan, like you had mentioned. Like that, that's a solution, but going out to a non-recourse bridge lender is probably not going to be an opportunity for you unless it's a very large park that you're looking at that's got a fairly large loan amount to it. So, yeah, or or packaging up several. There you go. Or creating your own portfolio, which obviously, if you've got too many, you know, too many parks for the number of units or number of loan size, I mean, that's that could be a challenge too. But another yeah. way to kind of look at it. So what's your long-term strategy, Andrew? I mean, what do you guys kind of envision your next five or 10 years looking like? Are you guys long-term buy and hold, like just buy as many as we can and, and ride off into the sunset? Or do you see this as being a scale, build a large portfolio and potentially exit out in 10 years or so? Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say five or 10 years. We're, we're definitely long-term buy and hold investors just kind of by nature. I think that we're with with the company that we've built and the number of employees and that side of the business we're we're definitely built for going into a pretty big acquisition time. So I think until deals stop penciling out, I mean, we, we both know that this asset class historically through a correction is gonna do is gonna do just fine, whether or not we're gonna see the amount of cap rate compression that other asset classes have seen in the past five years or so. I mean that's that's the big challenge I think is is what are deals going to look like in a couple of years. So yeah. I think if you can figure out ways to buy more deals that other people aren't looking at, which are some of the things that that you and I are working on, then that gives you a little bit of a leg up. So I think in general, I mean, these are harder to operate and they're not easy deals to find and they're not easy deals to turn around. So I don't think we have any interest in really you know, in, in five years and exiting everything, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to be a long-term player in the space and continue to buy as long as it makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, have you noticed over the last couple of years that you guys have to look at X number more deals to actually find one that pencils out? I mean, like, do you have any, do you guys keep any kind of statistics on, you know, the, what that ratio looks like? Like, hey, we underwrite hundred deals to find one or underwrite 50 deals to find one. And have you seen that number increase significantly over the last couple of years? I don't think it's, it's increased significantly. We definitely track all that stuff in general. Like we've, we've, I think we've spent more time trying to figure out the, just the LOI process, right? Where we look at something and we don't want to spend a million hours looking at something before we, we make an offer. I mean, you know, when, when you think about a broker putting together a package on a community and obviously if you're dealing directly with a seller, it's kind of a whole different, you know, can of worms, but when a broker puts something together, you kind of have to go by what the broker is telling you, right? In that in that scenario, so we've been. I think we've spent more time just focused on making more LOIs, and and then once something's accepted and you're on the, you know, you're on the path together, and then really kind of digging into the numbers and making sure everything is, you know, what 
what you were told it is, which of course never happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the last time that actually happened. <laughs> if there's any drawback to this business, again, you can look at it from glass half full, glass half empty uh, yeah. standpoint is you literally have to recreate everything most of the time as far as yeah. financials are concerned. And it, it's normally a complete disaster. Hopefully, if you're dealing with a broker, hopefully they've done a lot of the cleanup, but then you have to clean up their cleanup <laughs> before you get it to make sense. And so no offense to brokers out there. I love you all, but yeah. well, and, the, and, the, and, and some of the time they're only going by what information they, yes. they have, which, you know, obviously some of that's going to be correct and some of it's, you know. Yeah. Well, Andrew, you, you shared a lot of great information here today. A lot, lots of words, the wisdom and golden nuggets uh, along the way. But if you had any final words of, of wisdom that you might leave with our listeners that might inspire and motivate them as they progress in their mobile home park investing career. What would uh, some of those last words of wisdom be? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it, it kind of depends on the, on the path you're going. I mean, if you're going to get into the space and you're in an area where there's deals, then great. You know, it's, it's really more of, are you looking at buying something that's more stabilized with less work and potentially less upside and maybe a lower cap rate? Or do you want to really roll up your, you know, roll up your sleeves and and do the work? And, and I don't think there's any right or wrong way, but just know where where you are in the market cycle. And if you're buying something that's two thousand miles away and you don't have a team, just know that that's you know that's a challenge, right? It's 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 a yeah. you know it's again I I said it, it's a it's a hard asset class and and anything in affordable housing is difficult. But I think there's a you know there's a lot of opportunity in the space still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And Andrew, how can folks uh, learn more about you and your companies? Where, where can they find you? The equity firm is Four Peaks Partners, which is fourpeakspartners.com. That's all spelled out. And the operator is parkplacecommunities.com. And that's where all of our um, properties and homes for sale and things like that. So those are probably the two best ways. Okay, fantastic. Well, Andrew, really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, guys, I appreciate you joining us here today on the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. And until we meet again next week, make it a great one. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you having me on. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.